Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 18. We're going to try and cover chapters 18 through 21 today. Again, when we start dealing into the dispersion of the land that is here, it'll go pretty quick because I'm not going to cover all the territories uh, that are there, all the names that are equated to the territories. Um, just, it's probably something that would be a little laborious, especially for me trying to read all of those names. But chapter 18, we're going to start seeing the division of the rest of the land. And let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. That's the tabernacle. So Shiloh is now going to become the home base, the hub for the people of Israel now that they've entered into the promised land. Remember where it was previously. Where was it? Where was their place of meeting? Gilgal. It was when they first crossed over the Jordan. Before they battled Jericho and went deeper into the land, they would meet at Gilgal. And they would always retreat back to that place. Well, now Shiloh. And Shiloh means peace. It's kind of neat. They get into the land. We saw that they had ceased from the battle, the fighting with the armies, although there were still skirmishes that needed to be uh, battled. I almost said skirmishes. That's kind of the squirmy skirmishes. But anyway, they go to Shiloh and they set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. Verse 2, it says, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua said to the Israelites, how long Will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? And so once again, we see Joshua giving a little push. And he's going to go into the seven tribes and disperse the land here. But, but just to grasp hold again of what is taking place, the whole assembly of the Israelites gather together now. When they say Israelites, they mean the sons of who? Jacob. Okay, Jacob was renamed Israel. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve, which became the twelve tribes. So we know that this is who he's speaking about. The Israelites are the sons of Jacob, the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. And when he says there, the assembly, the whole assembly, that means all of them. The word assembly is actually congregation. In the Septuagint, it's translated ecclesia, or what we get the name church. And so that's the origin of where we get it. The whole group, the whole congregation, the ecclesia, the, the church actually came from the, the people who belong to God or, or God's possession. That's what church means. And so here it is taking place with the children of Israel, the people who belong to God, the congregation, the group, the ecclesia in the Septuagint translation, and it would apply to us. Remember, as we are going through Joshua, this book has so many things that we can apply to our own lives. That's why Alan Redpath calls it victorious Christian living. That's his commentary on the book of Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. 
There are the similarities that we've been looking at throughout this whole book. And here's another one where it talks about the whole assembly gathering together God's people, which would apply to us there at Shiloh, the place of peace, the, the regular meeting. And as he says there, he gathers them together and he says in verse 3, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? And, and it's a question that struck me as one that we need to ask ourselves. You know, what is our Christian life for? Our Christian life was not intended to be a series of crises and emotional upheavals of problems and battling and just having to endure. The Christian life was meant to push forward. It's intended to be a steady, onward, triumphant march towards the goal, which is God himself. It was meant to be victorious. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it in abundance. But how many of us live lives that are stagnant and constantly in a place of being defeated? Constantly being in that same rut a crisis after crisis, emotional struggle after emo emotional struggle, and we just can't seem to get out of that rut, out of that pit. And we are failing, many of us, to, to press on and to conquer the enemy, the enemy that needs to be subdued before us. Jesus has conquered the enemy, sin, Victory is ours. He has conquered death itself. But there are the battles of our soul that need to be subdued. And so many of us stay in that place. And like Joshua telling the nation, I believe our Joshua is telling us how long before we take possession of the promises that belong to us. The riches that are in Christ that are now ours, our inheritance to realize that we have victory in Jesus, that we are seated, as it says in Ephesians, at the, the hand, right hand, or Jesus at the right hand. We are seated in heavenly places. Do we recognize that? And if we recognize that, how will that affect how we live when the difficulties come? When the trials come, when the hardships come, when the emotional, overwhelming situations come in our lives, what will we do, what will we recognize, and how will we push through it? You see, when you have the right perspective, then it makes sense what James says, I count it all joy when I fall into different trials, knowing that the testing of my faith produces perseverance. How can you say something like that? Well, he's got the right perspective. He's got the right picture. He is able to see things from God's perspective. And when you see things from God's perspective, it helps you to see the truth and understand where you are and move forward. I received an email recently from Pancho Juarez from Calvary Chapel Montebello talking about 
La Posada that's there in Rosarito. And he shared in this email that Rosarito, uh, La Posada in Rosarito was actually going to shut its doors of ministry. That because of financial hardships, they're having to reevaluate things. Victor and Sonia, who've been there for, I think, 14 years, are going to be stepping out of that place. And Abel from Montebello is going to be stepping into that place and kind of transferring things, and they're not sure what's going to happen. And he presented this to a number of pastors, asking them for prayer and to any ideas, suggestions they might have, and if they would want to be a part of whatever future work it was there. And when I first heard this and I got this email, it depressed me because that has been such a powerfully used place. I don't know how many ministries have gone and made camp there at La Posada and then ministered out there. I mean, my own kids have been a part of that probably half dozen times over the years. I've stayed there en route to Vizcaino and other places a few times. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, it just grieved my heart. But then I thought, you know what? An eternal work has taken place from there. And even though La Posada in that place might close down, the work that has taken place there goes on. And, and I shared that, I wrote back to Poncho and I says, I, I'm just, my heart is saddened by this, but I rejoice in the eternal work that has taken place from that place. We can rejoice in what God has done because it is ongoing. You see, the perspective, that's not a defeat. Eternal things and eternal victories have taken place and the ministry is continuing. And so with us, we need to recognize that these setbacks, these struggles, these hardships, whether they're emotional, whether they're physical, whether they're financial, that hit us all is not the end. We need to continue pressing forward in this life of Christ. We need to allow the enemies that come and would subdue our service to God be put aside and see victory, and not allow them to conquer us, but in turn, we conquer those things that nothing would hinder the work of God in our lives in that work. That we would run the race, as Paul says, that we'd fight that good fight, that we would finish well, and not allow those things to conquer us. And so we see that he tells them that they need to go on and take this land. And then he's going to go in and have them survey the land. He sends out guys to survey the land. He's going to bring it back and divvy it up between these last seven tribes. And we don't know exactly how it took place. They might have put seven names in one box and, you know, seven territories in another and picked one and picked one and said, okay, this is yours. Go out and get it. We don't know exactly how it happens, but we know that in verses 11 through 13, Benjamin is given his place. And it goes through, it says, the lot came up for the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. They allotted territory, lay between the tribes of Judah and Joseph. So Benjamin has a territory between Judah and Joseph, which is interesting because Judah and Joseph had tension in the past. So Benjamin is kind of in there separating these two. And he gives out the territories. And I'm not going to go through all these names, but 
some of these names you know. I mean, I'm not going to read it all, but we know the name Jericho is mentioned in there, which is the scene of Israel's first great victory in the Promised Land in Joshua 6. Bethel is mentioned, which is the place that is honored by Jacob having that special revelation from God in Genesis 23. Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream there. Ramah was where Samuel's home was, and there he judged Israel and built an altar to the Lord. Also in Mizpah, one of the three cities that Samuel visited in his turn as he judged the people, and those took place in 1 Samuel 7. Jerusalem, it's the border between Judah and Benjamin, and that became the chief city. We know Jerusalem was where the temple would eventually be built. And it's interesting that Judah, Jerusalem is still considered a holy city there between the Christians, Jews, and even Muslims. It is still considered a holy city, which is interesting. And so it has a special place in history. All those are mentioned in this portion there. Now in chapter 19, see how quickly we're moving? Chapter 19, we get the continued allotments of land. In verses 1 through 9, we got Simeon's inheritance. Now, Simeon is one that's interesting because he had little influence and he was actually surrounded by Judah. Remember, we talked about Simeon and Levi together. How that they went out and avenged their sister Dinah, who was raped by Shechem. And they slew all the men. They tricked them, told them that if they wanted to be a part of their family, they had to be circumcised. And after they had been circumcised, when they were unable to fight, Levi and Simeon went and slew them all. And we saw that this was something that really displeased Jacob. He prophesied in Genesis chapter 49 against them both, saying they would not receive their inheritance, that they would waste away. And it's interesting because Simeon has this small portion, but in time, they get absorbed by Judah and they just kind of get assimilated into Judah and they do, in fact, fade away. They are not significant in the future, even as was prophesied by Jacob. And so Jacob prophesied, you will not have a part in the inheritance and sure enough, they fade out. Now, Levi also was prophesied against, but we talked about that. A few weeks back on Sunday, we talked about how Levi redeemed themselves. Remember, they redeemed themselves when Moses came down from the mount with the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel were engaged in idolatry of the golden calf and all kinds of lewd conduct. And Moses said, who is going to stand with me? And all of the tribe of Levi went to Moses. And because of that act, God allowed them an inheritance. But it wasn't an inheritance of property. He said the Lord himself would be their inheritance. And so the Levites became the servants of the temple. Those who were connected to Aaron were actually priests, but all those of the tribe of Levi served the Lord. And we'll see they're given their places in the chapter 21 later that we'll talk about. But what I think is interesting about this is that how can you make a prophecy that Jacob gave to Levi and Simeon true and yet still redeem this one tribe of Levi. 
And God does it. God is the master of the loopholes. We saw that last time, how we talked about this genealogy and the one tribe that was cursed and would not have the Messiah born through that, but the Lord rerouted that. He had Mary's lineage and we had Joseph's lineage. One is spiritual, one is judicial or legal, and God was able to bypass the curse that was given. And here we see that God once again says that these two tribes will not have an inheritance. Jacob prophesied that. And they don't. Simeon gets washed away and dis disappears. And Levi's, his inherit their inheritance is the Lord himself. So they don't have property, but because they did what was right, God gave them something. And he actually gave them something better. He gave them himself. And so we see how important that is, that the decision that they made was able to, in a sense, reverse the condemnation that was given by Jacob. But not entirely. It, God redeemed them, gave them an inheritance, but they still missed out on the land. And it's an important thing for us to understand that it's never too late to make the right decision and follow after the Lord, but there are still the consequences to bear of the sin that we do. We still reap what we sow, but it's never too late to make the right decision, and God will give you an inheritance. Even if it's like Levi and it's himself, which isn't a bad thing at all. And so... Simeon's inheritance is given in verses 1 through 9, and we see that they eventually kind of fade out. In verses 10 through 16, we have Zebulun's inheritance, 17 through 23, Essachar's inheritance, 24 through 31, Asher's inheritance, 32 through 39, Naphtali's inheritance. Now, Naphtali, again, is another one we see failed to do what they were supposed to. In Judges 1.33, it says, Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh, Beth Anath, and the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanites, inhabited of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh, Beth Anath, became forced laborers for them, and eventually they just kind of commingled with them, and it became a problem. So we see, once again, that they have tolerated the people of Canaan. They didn't drive them out. Even though they were victorious and battling the armies, there were still these skirmishes and they just chose to live with them instead of fight and finish it. And Naphtali, again, was one of those that did the same thing. In verses 40 to 48, we see Dan's inheritance. And then we see at the end, Joshua receives his inheritance. Starting at verse 49, it says, When they had finished dividing the land into its allotted portions, the Israelites gave Joshua, son of Nun, an inheritance among them. As the Lord had commanded, they gave him the town he asked for, Timnath, Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he built up the town and settled there. These are the territories that Eliezer, the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel assigned by lot at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so they finished dividing the land. Joshua, the first in service, but the last in reward. Joshua was the one who led the people in, but he was the last one to receive his allotment. 
And what, a, again, a, a, a beautiful picture of Jesus, who did not come to be served, but came to serve. As Jesus said, the first will be last, and the last shall be first. And the land that Joshua takes is, again, the hill country, the same area where we saw Caleb wanted some of that region, the place where the giants were, the harder areas to conquer. And that's what Joshua took. He, he didn't go for the easy part. He didn't say, well, I want, I, hey, you know what? I'm here first. I want to get my inheritance first. I want some land over there by, you know, the Mediterranean. I want some place lush and, and fertile. I want the easy place. I, I've done the most work. I've deserved the most. He didn't do that. He was the last. You know, what example that is for us and for those who are in any place of leadership. That example that Jesus was as he girded himself with the towel and washed the disciples' feet. The, the job of a slave. And he said, if I am your Lord, your master, and I wash your feet, you need to wash others' feet as well. And what a tragedy we hear so often and even see so often. Those who are in leading positions at churches don't have this attitude. They have a, a first attitude. You've probably heard stories, maybe you've seen examples where pastors have the best of I've seen pastors where they, there's a group of people who are, are on a, a retreat to go in and minister. And they're all staying in one place, but the pastors, they stay in a nice hotel somewhere else. You know, the people, they stay here. The pastors, they stay here. I can remember one person talking to me, this one uh mission trip that I went on, they say, man, I came here to be with my pastor and I haven't even seen him. And we're out on the streets serving and ministering and then you see the pastor and their wives walking with shopping bags. <laughs> and they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're sweating out here, you know, doing, you know, one-on-one -on -one ministry and, and you know, struggling and laboring to try and connect with people. And there's the leaders, you know, shopping and, and taking their bags back to their hotel room. And it makes you wonder, where's the example? I know of pastors who, when things get tight, they just start firing people. Instead of taking a cut themselves, they just get rid of people. I also know pastors who take a cut and pay to keep people. And I think, what an example. What an example. And you see, if we ever come to a place of leadership, it's not that we get ours first. We make sure the work of God is taken care of, and then we get supplied. And God supplied Joshua's needs, and Joshua didn't take the easiest route. He took one that was difficult, but it was his. And what an example. I mean, here we are reading about this man who led the people, who was at the forefront of the 
conflicts, of the confrontation, of the complaining, and he gets his last. God still took care of him, and that's what takes place. And so Joshua, even though he was the first in service as the lad, last in getting his reward, but he, he exemplified what we need to remember. God first, others second, and then ourselves last. That's the way it needs to be. Chapter 20, we see the cities of refuge. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his cause case before the elders in that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malicious aforethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So then they set apart these cities in the next seven through nine. They talk about those places. Now, they set aside six cities and they were set a place in a place and in, in the strategic place where you could go to pretty much easily from any of the the territories that were given out. These six cities were places that were a place where you could run to if you accidentally killed someone and someone was out to get you. Now, when he stood before the gate of one of these cities of ref refuge, it wasn't that he just stood out there. That's where they would actually have their meeting place and where they would try you to see if you actually were found innocent of first-degree murder. If this was just second-degree manslaughter, it was an accident. And you think, well, gosh, that's, you know... Remember, we're living at a time where there's no OSHA. You know, there, there's a lot of things that happen that accidentally would cause problems. You're, you're working in difficult areas. You're, you're using animals where they might trample you. Stones might fall on you. A cart might break. You might get crushed. You know, you might swing an axe and it accidentally hit someone. I don't know. All these possibilities of things that could happen. But if it was an accident, God wanted the person who was innocent not to be sought after for revenge. As the law would say, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, what happens if I accidentally took his eye out? Do I still have to lose mine? God had made provision where if it was an accident, you could flee and find refuge. You could go to one of these cities. And there's a distinction here between willful murder and accidental homicide. God wants innocent people protected. It wasn't to protect those who were guilty, but those who were innocent. What I think is interesting about this is not only does God provide a place for them to go and find refuge where they're safe, where you can't go and get them, but they do have to leave. They have to leave the area where the accident happened. And you think about it and it makes a lot of sense because even if someone accidentally does something, the people who have lost a loved one 
they have a hard time emotionally dealing with that. I know of a few examples where there has been a tragedy, where there's been an accidental death of someone because of a, a car accident or whatnot, and the people who lost someone, their anger towards the person who was driving the other vehicle, who was involved with the other situation, it, it doesn't just go away. It's something they struggle with. And so God has this provision. If you've accidentally killed someone, you need to go away and give them time to settle down until a trial takes place and you're found innocent or when the high priest dies, whenever that is, you have to let time go by. And after the time goes by, then you can go back. And this is something that is talked about more in detail in Exodus 21, Numbers 35, and Deuteronomy 19. God has set this to be a place and how he was going to run it is explained in those things, but they needed to set this up right away. So the land gets allotted and we need to get the cities of refuge. And I think it's interesting that they set this up right away because refuge is something that is an important part of God's economy. A place where you can go if you're innocent, a place where you can go and be free from a judgment by someone else. Jesus is very much our refuge that we go to from our guilt of sin and our judgment that would befall us. We can find refuges from him and not have to have the judgment of God fall on us. And so these places of refuge are set apart so that the people can go and find them. In chapter 21, we continue and we see in verses 1 through 3, it says, Now, the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh and Canaan and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands of their own inheritance. Now, he goes on and explains 48 different cities from verses 4 through 42 that are dispersed all throughout the land of Canaan where the people of Levite are going to have to live. Money was collected from all the tribes that was then given to the Levites so that they could live in these set places of land so that they could buy things so that they could find the things that they needed. The people supplied them because the Levites were to serve the Lord. Their ministry was to the temple. It was also set up so that all these cities, no matter where you were in the land of Canaan, you were no more than 10 miles away from a Levitical community. In other words, Everywhere throughout the land, there was a place that you could go to where you could get counsel from someone who was familiar with the law and the scriptures, someone that served as teachers or, or pastors, in a sense, to the nation. And so all these places are distributed throughout Canaan so that the people of the land would have a spiritual influence near them. It was a priority to God. This isn't just about the land. This isn't just about you surviving. This is about you staying connected to the God that you are serving and living for, the one who's provided these things for you. 
It was to be an important part of their community, of their society. And so God has distributed all these areas and now he places the Levites throughout the land so that wherever they are, they can come and find someone that's close by, that they can receive from, that they could learn from, that they can gain from. And that they were supposed to provide for these people to live. And so they had a job to do their job was to instruct the people spiritually. And we see the importance of God's economy that the spiritual aspect is not neglected, that everyone is to contribute and everyone is involved with supplying for this group of people. The 48 cities throughout with all the lands. And, and I think it's interesting how they remember. Moses told us that we would get this. You notice how everyone says, Moses told me I would get this. Everyone remembers what belongs to them. I think that's funny. We do that, don't you? My kids remember things that I told, you know, well, if you do this, I'll give you this. It could have been five years ago they remember. I remember when you told me if I would do this and... You still haven't given me those, you know, shoes or whatever it is. I mean, kids just don't forget when you say, if you do this or this is what I have promised you, they remember. I can remember one time driving home, there was this little amusement park that was on our way home. I don't know where, but I was, was just a small kid. And I remember asking my mom, hey, mom, can we go to this amusement park? And she promised we can go there. Not to throw you under the bus, mom. But the amusement park closed, and I never went there. Streetline park. <laughs> but you don't forget those things. They just like stay with you. It's like, why do I care? It's probably dangerous anyway, you know. But they remembered what Moses told them. And so they come up when the allotment is giving us, and they said, what about ours? And now all the people have to contribute to the Levites because they are connected to the work of God. And here they were connected by not only monetarily giving a tenth of what they received to the people, but here they're also involved by giving up of their land to the people that are the Levites, that represent the Lord. And it's important for us to recognize that we have to give of ourselves to the things of God. We give of ourselves with our time. We give of ourselves with our finances. We give of ourselves of our devotion. It's a part of our worship, giving God his due. And these are the things that connect us to the work of God. It's so easy to give mental assent, but it becomes more difficult when it takes of yourself. When it costs you something. Reminded of David, when he went and, and was going to offer to the Lord and at, there at the threshold, and they said, no, you're, you're the king, I'm going to give it to you for free. And he says, I will not give, offer anything to the Lord, that which costs me nothing. I'm not going to do it. It has to cost something because that's what worship is. I'm giving of myself to God. 
And serving God in whatever way, in whatever capacity, is going to invade your time. It's going to invade of your life in some way. It's a part of what worship is. And if it costs you nothing to live and follow after Christ, then you're probably living a mediocre Christian life. You're probably leaving, living one that is superficial in some way if it costs you nothing. But if it costs you time to get up and, and read, if it costs you time to talk to someone about faith in Christ, if it costs you something to give of your tithes and your monetary, if it costs you to open up your home maybe for a Bible study or to drive someone to church, if it costs you, then you're giving of God those things that are a part of you. You see, that, that's an important step to recognize and to realize that this has always been the case. Service of God has a cost to it. And we shouldn't shrink back from it. We should embrace it as a part of worship. This is what it is to worship the Lord. And so they distributed the 48 cities that are mentioned there from 4 to 42. In verse 43 of chapter 21, we come to the end and it says, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. I love this verse. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. God did not fail. Even though there were various tribes that failed to occupy their land fully, the Lord did his part. There was not a single army of the Canaanites that was able to resist them. And you see, even though the time that passed, it was over 400 years that God promised this to Abraham, 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness, seven years to battle and take and occupy this land. It doesn't matter. God fulfilled his part. God was faithful. God did not fail. The Lord saw to it that what he said was accomplished. What should that do to us? You know, the first verse that we read, the first verses that we read back in chapter 18, in chapter 18, verse 3, it said, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land the Lord your God, your fathers, has given to you? And then you read the end here, not one of all the good promises of the house of Israel, that the Lord promised to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. If the promises of God are there, why won't you take them? He's going to do his part. We need to do our part. And why would you leave it undone if he's promised? And, and where do we find ourselves where we're thinking and we're stuck in that rut and we're not moving forward in the promise? What is it that we don't realize? We don't realize that God has promised us a life that is abundant in him that neither death, nor height, nor principalities, nor things to come 
No such thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If that's his promise, are we living in it? Are we embracing the truths of God's promise? Or are we saying, I don't really feel like he loves me today because of this circumstances, because of this situation, because of this trial, because of this difficulty. I, I don't really know if God is there. God will not fail on any of his promises. Never. And this is a miraculous verse right here. Because a hundred years previously, you, you would look at this verse and say, how could, how could God be true? Where is his promises to Abraham? Look at that land. We're, we're slaves in Egypt. That's not true. That can't be, that can't be, God can't be real. Because look where I'm at. Well, what's, what ends up being true? Your circumstances that change or God's word that gets fulfilled no matter what? What, what is the strength that you're going to build your life on? That we're going to build and take and hold on and own? Is it going to be how we feel our circumstances or is it going to be the promises of God that will not fail? And you see here it comes to pass not any of the promises that God gave. They were all fulfilled. The land that he promised, it was theirs and he saw them through the victory. What a powerful truth. If we would just embrace this, if we could live with the certainty of God's promises being a reality in our lives, how would that change how we live? How would that change the things that we do? What would we step into knowing that this is our inheritance? This is the life that belongs to us. When we're going through Romans, Romans 8, 28, I am persuaded that God is able to work all things for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. What does that promise do to us? That is a, a gold ticket to go and serve God as he would move you and as he would lead you because nothing can separate you from him and he is able to work everything for good in your life. Go for it. The land is yours. It belongs to you. I will not fail you. Signed, God. And so the Lord made good on all the promises to the house of Israel. He didn't fail in anything. They were all fulfilled. What God had promised to Abraham, what God had promised to Jacob, who became Israel, it was accomplished here in this book. And so what we read here in these verses is God saying, I did what I said I would do. I accomplished my part for the nation. I told you I would do this. I did it. Fulfilled it. Now, chapter 22 is... Uh, a rough chapter. It's going to be a little controversial. We got some little revolt going, a little revolution. We almost have a civil war that takes place in the next chapter, but we'll we'll get to that next time. Let's let's pray.
Father, you have told us that we are to put our hope in you, that you provide for us everything for our enjoyment. Lord, that you have given us life and life abundantly. That we could recognize what, what manner of love this is, that you have made us your children. That we are now your possession, even as the children of Israel were, as they were the congregation, the people that belong to you. That's who we are. We belong to you. And you've given us exceeding and great promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, to work in our lives to accomplish the good for us. And you've called us to follow after you, to serve even as you have served, Lord. And I pray that we would see your faithfulness that we would see your example as given through Joshua and as given through our Joshua, Jesus. And we would follow in your steps, Lord, that we would trust in you, that we would have faith in you for our inheritance, and that we would not seek to possess and we would not be people that would try and lord over others and have power or position but we would serve you, serve others, and allow you to give us our inheritance. God, you are so good. You are so faithful. You are able to do things that we cannot grasp. And time is no problem for you. And Lord, it's a huge struggle with us, but may we recognize that you are beyond time, that you make all things beautiful, in its proper time. And that includes us. And that includes the things you have for us, God. And so wherever we find ourselves, Lord, may we recognize your hands at work, preparing the land, preparing our hearts, preparing the inheritance for us. You will not fail. You will accomplish it. And you will bring us to yourself in due time. Thank you, God, again, for your goodness, your faithfulness. Lord, may our hearts be stirred to follow after you. We do ask it in Jesus' name.